Welcome to another episode of North American Deer Talk, where the fusion of facts and opinions become the education and entertainment for all. This is your host, Josh Newton, and we have another great show for you today. Everybody, Josh Newton here with North American Deer Talk. Uh, on today's show, we're trying something a little different. I have a guest from uh, North Dakota, and because uh, you don't ever want to say South Dakota to someone from North Dakota, but uh, I have a special guest on. The, <laughs> I have a special guest on the program today. Uh, many of you know him; some of you do not. Um, it is the executive director of NADIFA, the North American Deer and Elk Farmers Association. Sean Schaefer. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Sean and I are uh, we're conferencing through Zoom. We, uh, we hope there's no technical difficulties considering I am in uh, the far reaches of north central Pennsylvania and Sean is in North Dakota. So We are uh, socially distanced. We are very socially distanced and, and um, we have uh, invisible masks on for, for those of you watching on the, on the feed. So uh, uh, Sean and uh, Sean and I have known each other for for quite some time. Uh, I don't know, ten or fifteen years at least. And uh, I try to stay in touch with Sean because Sean's got his ear to the ground on uh, on pretty much all the issues uh, facing our our industry today. Um, and I just want to touch base with him and, and talk about a few of those things. So we're going to have a, a pretty wide ranging discussion from uh, Nadifa itself and its fundraising mechanisms to uh, EHD, some of the research uh, that's being done there. And then obviously uh, the big ticket item is always chronic waste and disease and has been for uh, nearly 15 or 20 years now. So I guess with that, Sean, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, I know that there was some uh, obvious with uh, COVID-19, there were some changes to the uh, fundraising event or the, the annual conference. If you wanna just kind of cover those and, and talk about where we are today. Okay. Um, you know, it was a, it was a letdown, a big disappointment when we had to cancel the conference. You know, we were one of the first ones to have to cancel, you know, we were right in that March timeframe and, um, you know, it was a, it was a serious blow to us. Uh, the majority of our income, our whole budget is based off of that fundraiser and that, that conference, you know, it's whether it's, it, you know, we have a lot of educational, a lot of breakout sessions, a lot of networking and, you know, uh, a huge trade show. I mean, so there's a lot of components to the conference, but truly, you know, honestly, the, the, the number one thing that we really have to have at the conference is the fundraising, you know, and, and so canceling that was just a, it, it was a killer, you know, and um, luckily we had enough in the kitty kind of carry us through for a while. And uh, we had some fundraising, fundraising things we'd sold uh, advertising and things like that. Uh, so we were able to carry through as long as we could. And then, um, we went with a uh, virtual, just like just Zoom here. Um, for those that are watching this on the podcast or watching it online, uh, you know, we actually had a live, you know, it wasn't like the eBay type auction. This was actually a live auction at auctioneer. And 
Um, and then uh, I'd like to thank the, the Deer Farmers of Ohio, Whitetail Deer Farmers of Ohio stepped up and uh, uh, not only did they helped us get some donations from there, but they actually got us a, a hall that we could have the, the auction in. I think we had a little over a hundred members from within Ohio show up and uh, they socially distanced while they were there, but uh, they actually provided a meal. They donated all that, uh, had a um, free will offering, I guess, donation for that. And we actually raised just about a thousand dollars just off the meal. Um, so it went really well, uh, great attendance from across the nation. I would say we probably had some of the strongest prices we've had in years, you know, for, this, for the semen. Um, we fine tuned it, you know, we got rid of a lot of the furniture stuff. We had some big peaks, big pieces, uh, some tables and uh, bedroom sets that we shipped and um, Moni Weaver, got to give him a shout out. Uh, he's taking care of all the shipping and transportation, didn't, doing an excellent job. But the auction itself, we brought in right at $200,000. So great. Um, just tremendous, tremendous support. Uh, some really big lots. We had some big ticket ones in there that uh, uh, Billy Sage, SNS Whitetails there, he did a neat drawing with giving away a rifle. He had five straws of semen and, and that brought, I think a little over 25,000 just for that thing. And, awesome. and then uh, High Roller Whitetails, James Butler, got to give him a big thank you too. I think his brought right around 27,000. So he had five lots and they got an opportunity to get into the, uh, his buck draft. So one yeah, of those, those guys, a little recognition. Those guys are always are super, our super sponsors. They're super generous every year. Oh okay. yeah, tremendous, tremendous. So, you know, and as I say, I hate to separate them up from the rest that donated because there are a lot of people that donated. It was excellent, you know, but but just to point out to those big ticket items, uh, that made up a huge portion of the sale right there, you know. And um, neat thing was uh, that chance to help the Schaefer brothers, that donation we do every year, actually went for $8,500 this year. And awesome. uh, we we're going to sell three of those. So, you know, that was- Holy smokes, that's great. That as well, you know, so- um, between those three, there was almost a little over $75,000 generated just from, right. from three components, you know? So, so how does that, um, how does that position Nadifa for, um, 2020, uh, from a financial standpoint to kind of round out the, the, the rest of the year and then into next year? That carries us forward. We were, we were, uh, we were on, I mean, ain't no doubt about it. We've been running tight for the last several years anyway, because we've had some tight conferences, you know, and, uh, the last few have been, a little late, you know, and so, um, and then with, with no income from March until now, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it, we were getting down there. So that will get us through fine, you know, it, it, it'll help pay the bills and it sets us up good to help out because the majority of Nadifa's money, you know, and, and hey, I'll be the first to admit it, I get the majority of probably the expense that goes out there, it goes to my income, you know, and everybody knows that, I mean, that's what I get paid, you know, and the other one is our staff, Mar Marcy. Um, but with that said, we're an organization with two employees, you know, two employees that, that do everything. And um, there's state associations out there that are running with as many employees, you know, or, or, close or more, to it, you know, yeah, or more. Right. Yeah. And, and, and a lot more. There's, there's a couple there with, like you say, yeah, that have, you know, seven times as much. Sure. So it, uh, you know, we need that money to pay the staff, keep us going. There's no doubt about that. But other than that, we spend a lot of money around the nation helping out this different states and just about every year, you know, Minnesota, I think it was a state last year that we kicked in and helped uh, hire a lawyer there to, to challenge some of the rules or some of the hold orders that have been put in place. And, you know, so we have done that repeatedly every year. It just seems like somebody has an issue out there and 
you know, we, we've stepped up and helped them fundraise and we help out just write a check sometimes to get it to them. So um, the one thing we've never done is rat hole the money, you know, and, and maybe that's right or wrong. I don't know. We've never built a huge war chest, you know, and um, some of those earlier days, we had some really good fundraisers back in, uh, you know, the, maybe the late 90s or no, the, the early 2000s. We first got going there. Um, we built up some money there, but you know, as we've had times that like you mentioned the, the CWD, the chronic waste disease and, and EHD, you know, I think our board are is kind of taking a position that, you know, it does us no good to have that money sitting in the bank if we're out of business next year, you know, and right now what we think is, you know, our most critical time, you know, and I, you know, I, I look how we've slowly have been slipping. Our numbers have been increasing on the CWD. Now, while it's small on the grand scheme of things, the number of producers in the country, it, it's still, it's a bugger to be you when it happens and hits your farm. And it's a bugger when you and I that know these people personally sure. get put out of business, you know? And sure. so we have, we've, we've thrown just about every resource we have. We spend a majority of our budget, you know, research and, you know, and, you know, education, trying to lobby and trying to get, you know, the efforts to keep pushing forward, to keep our head above water and, and to find a solution in which we're going to talk about later on in here. But I do think we're getting close to that solution. I feel a lot better now than I did. You know, I feel good better than I do, did three years ago. As, way better than I did As do years. I. Sure. So we're, we're well, getting a, there. You know? Yeah, that's, and I think that's a, a, a good segue, which we'll get to in a second. Um, for those uh, Nadifa members, all of the financials are always published in each of the quarterly newsletter um, magazines that, that you get as part of your membership. So if you're- you mentioning that, yeah, I, I, should, I should bring it up more, but if you're, they are there for anybody to see that ever wants yep. them. Books are wide open. Yeah, and um, uh, Brad, Brad, no, Brad Farmer. Um, uh, Hank DiMuzio. Hank DiMuzio, thank you, sorry. Sorry, Hank, if you're listening. Um, he, he always puts in some nice pie charts there and shows the breakdown with your, your um, incomes and, and uh, expenses there. So it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to follow along. So if you ever want to see where money's being spent, uh, it's there. So Josh, that's a good place for me to segue in or two. Sure. And, uh, uh, you know, other than that fundraiser that we have once a year, we only have one. I mean, and, and I've been asked, why don't we have more? Why don't we have some auction sales? Why don't we do this? Not, you know, and I just, that is not our business. Our business, I believe, is to be fighting for the industry and to take care of the politics and the, you know, the promotion and everything else. We're not in the auction business. Now, I know there are places out there, they have lots of them. I mean, and we don't do that. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't hold, hold tournaments or whatever. I mean, we have, we are a member organization, of industry organization to keep the industry afloat and going. Right. And uh, so we rely heavily on that fundraiser. But the other thing we rely on is, you know, advertising in our magazine makes us, it does generate income and, and helps produce a quality magazine. But the biggest one is, uh, is membership. So earlier when you mentioned for those that know me, you know, that are members and the people that don't know me, you know, if you're in the deer farming industry and you don't know who Sean Schaefer is, shame on you. That's, I, I don't know what else to say, but shame on you. If you do not know who Sean Schaefer is, I mean, cause I work for you, I'm working for the industry. And whether they're members or not, whether they know me or not, you know, they don't know where that, you know, that EHD vaccine came from or where, you know, why they're allowed to sell deer into the state of Ohio or into Indiana. How come they're allowed to cross some of these state lines and some they can't, you know, and who's fought for what, you know, 
and, and shame on them. If they're watching this, they're trying to learn what Josh has got to tell them so they can keep the deer healthier and stay in business and good for them, but they need to take it a step further and, you know, and join in with the rest of the industry that is fighting to keep the industry afloat and going. And, you know, so those memberships, I, number one thing I'd say is always join your state association first. If you can only afford one, be a member of your state association. But secondly, then, because your state associations support us, uh, Pennsylvania, your state, for instance, one of the largest, you know, the DFA supporters we probably have is the Pennsylvania Deer Farmer Association. Sure. And uh, so support your state associations. But if, you know, after that, you you really truly do need to join your national association. So thank yep. you for the selfish plug. Yeah, no, no, that's that's fine. I uh, Any chance I, I can get, I, I, I try to encourage folks to join those associations because they're really they're really the folks behind the scene um, in the state capitals, in the national capital, uh, talking with legislators, working with the lobbyists, um, formulating plans, legislation, and, and really trying to get funding through some of the agencies to tackle the issues we have. Um, and it's not, a, it's not an easy arena to play in. It's, it's really not. And if, if anybody knows uh, anything about politics in Washington relating to the the servant industry? It's it's you. So I'll, I'll personally thank you for your your trips over to to DC advocating for us. Um, I appreciate you joining us over there too last year. I'm I mean, happy to do so. Avenue, I, hopefully we have we had to get canceled this year. I mean, talk yeah. about a disappointment was, you know, our lobby and day our flying the our DC flying was canceled. So, yeah. uh, but that and that is probably one of the largest expenses our association has is our national lobbyist and uh you know but thankfully we do have boots on the ground even though you and i were not able to go out there that's right you've got people walking those halls you know wearing their mask and, and still beating on the doors and knocking on the doors and talking to them so um it, it's weird what this covid stuff has done maybe this is getting off track too far but we're um, here to talk you know there's bills popping up you know, and, and God bless them. I mean, we want to prevent any new diseases and viruses from coming into this country. And we want to do all we can to keep our people healthy. I mean, I'm all for that. But, you know, these knee-jerk reactions. I mean, there's been bills introduced to stop all trade of all wildlife. You know, someone says it started from a bat in China. So, I mean, you know, or maybe a ferret possibly they said, or a chicken cage on top of a ferret cage. And I mean, it's weird, the stuff they, they say. But, um to stop all trade of wildlife, I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, you know, because you and I are in truly the, you know, ours I consider mine livestock, I consider mine my deer, I own them. But many states, there's some states where they don't, and there's some states where it's a, you know, a dual jurisdiction. Either way, it's it's a blurred vision there. And, you know, to, to, to me, it's a slippery slope or whatever. I mean, I'd hate to go down there. All of a sudden, we're going to start just throwing out a no you're not going to move or sell any more wildlife into this country well the next step is within the country you know so we've had to, to in, you know in the last several months here we've been fighting certain bills and stopping to make sure staying ahead of them and it's always a well-intentioned congressman i mean they got they're, they're doing it for all we're good they you know but they think but the wording is not thorough enough or correct enough and and when you look at it, when you truly dig into it, is it is there any more rules and regulation needed? You know, they want to regulate the trade of bats and regulate the trade of bats. But you and I, we are already super regulated. If you want to bring in a deer or an elk or a fallow deer or a red deer or, you know, 
they are so regulated that this, the hoops you got to jump through are amazing, you know? And um, so the checks and balances are already in there. And it's, it's, it's not just from the ag side of it, but on the wildlife side, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is very thorough, you know, and then the, the Agriculture Department, USDA has got regulations in place. But that's the things we need our lobbyists there for. So you and I aren't there on a daily basis. All of a sudden my phone rings and they're like, oh, hey, do you hear, do you realize this is going on? You know, so um, it, it's neat having those people in Washington, D.C., watching on for our best interest I guess. yeah it's it's you can't you can't um you can't overstate the importance of having someone piped in to that particular area being there um having boots on the ground so they can they can kind of be that front line as well as them saying you know deer farmers deer ranchers servant industry um in, in those legislators ears consistently year after year after year um that that effort always pays dividends. Um, and we can like yourself was there last year and you'll right. come back next year. And it, you know, it's neat after you do that for a while, they remember you. That's right. You know? And, and that's the big thing is well, we have such a unique, relationship. unique business. Like, yes, we are. I'm sorry. Yes, we are. Your farming and ranching is, is cool. I don't care what anybody has to say, whether they're pro hunting, anti hunting. Every time I tell somebody that I raise deer, um, I, I pretty much always get a smile. They're yeah. like, what? That's awesome, right? It's just that's something that that um, is really neat, and and the, the same goes for the folks in Washington. You know, when you tell a congressman you're like, "I'm a deer farmer," they're like, they just some of them knew, but like a lot of them, they, they had no idea. They're like, "Deer farming, wow!" And the more that you put that into the pipeline, the more that that message is communicated amongst people, especially the you know past legislation, the better off we are. When we start talking about that seven point nine billion dollar a year economic impact mm -hmm. that our industry has i mean it's real i mean huge hey, we're out there i mean it's 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 a there's a lot bigger industries than us but there's some smaller ones too and you know either way we are uh, our tax basis our income our, you know what we contribute to society is real I mean, and so it's it's rural economies and that's probably that's, yeah you hit that's that's huge you know we're, we're outside of the urban areas we're outside of urban sprawl we're pre preserving private property and family farms we're conserving property, um, you know, we're conserving livestock, wildlife, we're conserving deer, elk, um, those types of species. And that's just huge. Um, when you when you look at that and you look at this, you know, what, what we consider, a, um, you know, a, a healthy lifestyle uh, movement, clean eating, uh, rural spaces, public land, those are, those are all big issues. Um, certainly there was just that, uh, the, uh, outdoor bill was just passed through, through Congress to preserve some, some private lands, uh, out West. And, and certainly that's a little, uh, different type of thing, but like our goals are all the same. They really exactly. are. Exactly. So. At the end of the day, we all got to stick together. You we know? do for sure. We're, gonna, we're all going to hang together as they say, you know, so <laughs> it, uh, you know, and I think that's where the people that start splitting hairs, you know, and, uh, the crossbow hunter or the comp or the longbow hunter doesn't like the crossbow or doesn't like the compound bow. I mean, Hey, we got it. We're, we're all in the hunting. We're all in the outdoors. We're all in the keeping the rural America going, yep. you know, agriculture. It's even agriculture is a really fine line, you know, cause I've got, you know, neighbors over here that, you know, but big part of their income comes from people accessing their land and hunting, you know, mm -hmm. the geese and the ducks and, you know, yep. deer or whatever. I mean, so fenced or not fenced it you know it, it's it's still a, a big income part of agriculture these days you know some of them are farming putting in the food plots you know 
they're basically farming for the wildlife. You know, right. I know people in Texas that are increasing their land values by basically improving the wildlife upon it. You know, the the water wasn't there, the, the resource in there to run enough cattle, you know, and can't grow enough grass to truly, you know, make it economical, you know, cattle per acre, you know, your cow calf bears. And, but I'm like, how do they start, you know, meal guy, axis deer, some of these exotics, you know, white-tailed deer, um, they can increase their values of their properties tremendously, you know? Yeah, and, and this, this I, I have this conversation uh, once a week with a, another gentleman who's been on my show a couple of times. And uh, we, we, we talk about the efforts to uh, take private property preserve it, conserve it, and improve it. And it pays, it pays the bills by doing that. Right. And, and people, I, I don't think that there's, I think we as an industry can put more thought and practice into looking at these pieces of property, developing them through the use of animals, agriculture, um, forestry, all the different great things that, you know, the outdoors and wildlife have to play into that and then and make a living from that. It's just a win-win-win. We we haven't quite put all those pieces together, um, but I think it's a, a noble goal for us to to work. I always on. say you know, I don't you know want to sound like I don't know some of them tree huggers out there, you know whatever. <laughs> but nothing. God bless tree huggers too. But um, but at the end of the day, I am. You know, I'm one sure. of the biggest conservationists. I hope I'm the biggest conservationist out there. I hope the guy that you know. I, I just would keep my land green and in grass, you know, or in alfalfa or clover or maybe some corn, you know, then I would have seen it, you know, dozed and paved, you That's know, right. or, or a gravel parking lot or, yep. you know, or a shopping mall. I mean, there's a lot of alternatives. I mean, some way I get to generate income to afford donuts. So um, if I can do it and keep it green and keep people and not just myself and my family, but my friends and my neighbors and other people enjoying it, that's just a win. That's a it is a win for everybody. It is. Um, so we were talking about Nadifa and funding before we 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 went off on a on a little sidebar there, which is good. Um, so the you, you talked about um, having you know having money in the bank account, having these fundraisers, and then and then spending that money. Obviously, with uh, staff salary and then and then the lobbyists, those are are two uh, pretty sizable. Um, investments in into the industry. There's also some other things um, that Nadifa has kind of spearheaded and worked on over time, and and one of them is the uh, EHD vaccine that's recently been developed in conjunction with with MedGene Labs. Would you just touch on that um, for the folks that that don't know about that? Yeah, um, it it started several years back. I guess, uh, geez, probably almost six years ago. Uh, I sit on a advisory board for at Kansas State University, and and um, they work with the CZAD Center for Excellence of Emerging Zoonotic Animal Diseases. Anyhow, uh, funded through Homeland Security, looking at zoonotic diseases and uh, a lot of these oviviruses are the class they fall into. A lot of these foreign animal diseases, you know, African horse sickness, you know, uh, foot and mouth disease. I mean, there's a lot of different diseases out there that we're trying to keep out of this country, and wonder about what happens when they get here. Well, my little contribution to the conversation was, well, you know, we got a wicked virus right here within our country, couple of them, you know, uh, blue tongue and EHD, both fall in that. Separate diseases, cousins, I think you'd call them. Um, and there's several strains of each, you know, and 
many strains, actually like 17 strains of blue tongue, but there's three strains of EHD within this country. And, you know, we've been just left to battle them all by ourselves. I mean, are we, that's all we, you know, no one was helping us, you know, and so I'm like, why are we worried about the what if when we have one right here, you know, when EHD eight, you know, stormed across Europe, I mean, it devastated cattle, livestock, you know, wildlife. And it was, it was, it was traumatic to the, the kind of whole country of Europe. And we're worried about what happens if that hits here. I'm like, well, gosh, dang it. You know, what happened when we got six? Oh, yeah. we, we EHD six, right. we all had one and two, and all of a sudden we have six. Now they say, oh, that's endemic here. Now it's, it's part of America. But EHD six has killed more animals and has, has killed cattle and yaks and elk and mule deer and antelope, things that EHD one and two never did. But it's because everybody's naive to it. So, so my whole big push is, you know, we need help with this. And they... Uh, by golly, Homeland Security kicked in the money to do it. And Medgene Labs in South Dakota stepped up to the plate and said, hey, we've got a technology here. They've been working in the swine industry, poultry industry, developing other vaccines. And they happened to be there said, you know, we think we could do something with this. So it's taken time. And uh, they worked with a couple of close deer ranchers within South, they're in South Dakota, based out of Brookings, South Dakota. Um, they had a couple ranchers there within oh, 60 miles or whatever that they worked with and helped test some of the stuff. Uh, sheep are a big, big carrier of uh, blue tongue, and it's, it's bad for sheep as well. Um, they worked with them a little bit, working on some uh, vaccines and, and developing the, the R&D end of it, the research and development. And, you know, and myself included, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth there, knowledge and, and colonists and and finally, they got something that they thought worked, and they actually came to my personal farm because here in North Dakota, in my area where I'm at, my particular area, Western North Dakota gets hit pretty hard. Eastern doesn't, Central doesn't. And they came up here, and we we drew a bunch of blood on everything, and had all naive animals. We vaccinated them all, and then we come back along and and waited a couple of weeks and vaccinated, drew blood to see what type of titer, what type of antibody response we got, and then we vaccinated again came back again like three weeks later and drew blood again and i'll tell you all winter long we were running them things through and drawing blood and checking them in, in the following summer the following fall it's been just a neat project um been a lot of work on my part uh we got paid nothing for this uh you know i had heard behind a rumor mill one time that someone said well it's just not fair to shaver's up there getting all this stuff done oh, his sure. animals like well number one i don't get ehd i don't have no business at all to be messing with my animals i mean uh, we had, you know, we had a broke leg. We had a few animals get hurt and scun up and, you know, the stress on our animals that I did for the industry to help our members down south and out east and the ones that are to the west. And so hopefully it benefited everybody. But the neat takeaway was just to see the, see the results and the antibody response you get from the first shot is tremendous. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how long lived it'll be, but it's, it's, it's there, but it, it, it's enough to protect, but it's, it's small, but that second shot, given that second shot, you know, the first shot basically primes the system. Mm -hmm. That third shot, the second shot is what really truly hammers at home. And their, their little graph or chart, whatever that they're, when they run these tests, it only goes up to like 350 on the, the tighter scale. 
and they're off. It maxes them out. I mean, it's just crazy how the type of antibody response we get. So we truly have a vaccine that's working. And it was EHD2 only, in the, you know, and then this past year, they were able to get, e, they had EHD1, 2, and 6. They did 2 first, and then they did 1 and 6. And then they mixed the 3 together to try to get a shot for all of them. And it doesn't work. Mm. And they struggled. So they sold the 2 only. 2 is our, probably our biggest challenge within this, the industry. But the neat, you know, neat thing was this past year, they were able to get 2 and 6 to work together. Um, and as an industry, as a farm, you know, us farmers, it seems like we always want to, we got our hands on animal, we give them 15 shots, you know, well, that isn't always a good thing. Sure. More is not better. It's not, you know, sometimes less is more. And, and that's where they've kind of taken this is, you know, you're not trying to overload that animal system, not trying to ask its body to generate a super titer for everything. I mean, it just, you know, hopefully someday we can get there. But right now, though, they do have EHD two and six together in a combo or you could buy them separate if you want but you know they have the combo together i think it's only eight dollars a dose <laughs> and and it works that's the neat thing about it now has it been challenged a lot out in the in the industry across the country other than just my farm yes uh the university of florida servid health research initiative cherry i think is uh the acronym and they've been testing it for several years in, in florida as well and have had farms where they didn't vaccinate all the animals, just vaccinated some, and they had death in the non-vaccinates and the healthy ones, the vaccinated ones had remain healthy this day. Uh, they also drew blood and tested for titers. So, so it, it's, it's working, it looks good. The surprising part that really baffles me is they're not selling a lot of vaccine. It, mm. It's really surprising that, you know, the, for years, I took a, a verbal beating once in a while because I did so much work with CWD, but it's EHD that's truly killing our deer, you know, and putting all of us out of business, you know, and you're not doing anything for that. Well, we were trying, but it just is, if it had been an easy fix, it had been fixed a long time ago, but right. it's not an easy fix. But here we are now, fast forward to today, present time, we've got a vaccine that works and they, they really truly are not selling the numbers that they used to, you know, and I, you know, we've worked with some autogenous vaccines and in the past people have developed those and worked with them. And, and it was right around that, like that 20 to 25,000 doses a year were being sold. And so they had kind of a target number and I don't think they've sold 5,000. Hmm. So where's the other 15,000 doses? Where's the other, you know, 20,000 doses? I mean, everybody's kind of just waiting, I think for the deer to, you know, and it's, it's weird. Maybe it's a farmer thing again, where we're conserving our money or we wait, you know, and, but you can't vaccinate them after they get sick and you can't wait for the disease to hit you before you start. I mean, it's, it's too late already. It takes that, like I said, that three week time span and vaccinating a sick animal is almost a bad thing because you're, it definitely is. There's no question. Yeah. So it, you're overloading the system then. And so I'm just, I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity here. I'm going to put a plug in for MedGene labs for sticking up and for fighting for the industry. Cause they took a little beaten from the, some of their counterparts too. Like, well, why are you working with this deer industry? You know, and why are you doing this? I mean, and they threw a lot at it. They spent a lot of money, invested a lot of money. And the people are just kind of sitting back watching. I'm like, and I just don't get it. I mean, I, I go on Facebook here and I see some people are getting hit around the country and it's just sad. So they're not doing anything. Yeah. So, so to, to recap what I heard, we have a, an EHD two and six vaccine 
that has been tested in uh, multiple locations on multiple animals, um, pretty thoroughly vetted that that works. Can I add to that? I Please do. I'm glad you brought that up because they're, they're going for, um, the, in the past, we've had these autogenous vaccines. They're not licensed. They're over, there's oversight, but there's no licensing. So no regulation, nothing, they, no standard that they must meet. With this vaccine that is being produced right now, they're going for a conditional license because a fully license is unreal, the, the requirements that it takes and the timeline and the money. And But the conditional license that they're doing is through USDA's CVB, the Center for Veterinary Biologics, has oversight. So they must meet certain tiers of everything. Every step along the way has, is, has direct oversight. And they cannot sell anything. And it's actually being sold as an experimental drug even at this time. So they ask you to sign a paper saying if something dies, you'll take it to a vet and have it checked out to see right. that it die of EHD. Because if it did, they want to know. USDA doesn't want to say you can say it's licensed and it works and your deer died of it. So um, with that said, no, vac no vaccines 100%. I'm not, I got to think if this has been in the 80s or 90s, something like that. I, I'm not 100% in that specificity and sensitivity, but uh, um, it is, it's working really well though, you know, and, um, but it does have true government oversight, it, yeah, USD oversight, uh, all every step of the way. Yeah, and I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes there to MedGene Labs. Um, that way, if, if folks are, are interested in doing some research on EHD vaccine, and they want to, they want to go ahead and take the leap and, and get vaccinated, uh, they'll have the resource to do so. So uh, now, there's still time now. I mean, that's the thing. We, we, right. we look at the calendar right now. August, September is getting some tough times. People are getting hit right now already. But let's say you vaccinate. You go out there. You could go with a dart gun, and uh, and you could hit them all with a two cc dart, and and they're going to start getting protection instantly. You know, now within it gets better every day. But by that third week, you've already got some protection, you know, and, and now you go back out there and hit them with that second shot. And now you're really getting super protection. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not, there's one of those deals you say, well, I should have done it the last spring when I was running them through and vaccinating or running them through and worming them, whatever. Well, yeah, you should have, but you still can do it now. Yep, and, get after it. <laughs> yeah, and once you do it, once you start at least, um, it's only one shot a year after that. So, um, and you can do that next spring, you know, but right now I'd encourage anybody and everybody that has ever been affected by EHD or been that close or, you know, even myself, we're considering doing it now this fall with our bucks here that we're going to sell off to, you know, Oklahoma, Kansas, you know, Iowa, you know, they're, they've been devastated in the past with EHD. Well, I want to make sure I sell a deer that's going to go down there and survive. Sure. So, you know, we're looking at even doing it. So if you're in an area that doesn't get hit, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, whatever, I mean, if you're shipping or selling, if you have clients that are in EHD areas, hey, protect them for them, you know, add some value added to your animals. And, yeah, I like that idea. You. I think that makes sense. Um, anything else on the EHD front before we move on to another three-letter acronym? There's a, there is a, uh, another one we, that, I mentioned University or Kansas State University. They also are working on a on a EHD vaccine, and uh, it wouldn't be right if I didn't mention them. Their uh, their vaccines in the trial stage right now, so uh, it's it's not available. Can't buy it, can't get it, but it's it's there. And my whole point for bringing that up is 
the competition's always good. You know, uh, it'll drive the price where it needs to be. It'll, but it'll, more importantly to me is it's going to drive the quality of the product up That's higher. Right. Maybe you know, yeah, it must be better than the other guy. You know, technology so, always advances. Yeah, yep. so that was just a good thing. But the neat the other part about a little selfish plug for Nadifa again is Kansas State University and agriculture and, and ARS Agricultural Research Services USDA's ARS. Um, they're working together a collaborative effort because myself sitting on that board Nadifa being there and working together with them you know and having that input um you know that's what we're doing so when you're wondering what do you get for your membership what do you get for your hundred dollars that's what you're getting is we are out there making sure this is happening making sure people are working and producing what we need as an industry to survive right excellent um okay so we'll 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 shift gears into some uh, chronic waste and disease or CWD. You know, as I kind of mentioned in the intro, uh, chronic waste and disease is, is really the big juggernaut for our, our industry as far as the, the regulations and the regulatory environment that it, it's put on us. Um, I, I think we can all safely agree that we obviously don't want CWD on our farms, but it's certainly not, um, it certainly doesn't have the initial devastating effect that like an EHD does uh, by any means. With that said, we, we have this regulatory environment that's, that's been created and that um, it's, it's really important to notice the, um, the work that's being done with CWD as a disease and not, not so much in, a, in a, a regulatory environment. So I guess with that, can you, can you give us some um, can you give us an update on where um, regulatory is, and then we'll shift into that that research end of things. You know, uh, on the regulatory side, I think the biggest change here is you know when that last CWD program standards came out, it allows for live testing. So when you get caught up in a trace out or a tra you know trace back, trace forward, you get somehow tied to a herd that you either bought a deer from them, sold a deer to them. Um, whatever, some tie to that or uh, bought a deer from somebody that sold a deer to somebody there. I mean, it, it, that spider web grows huge. Uh, in the past, all we've had for an option is kill that deer. Any connect deer you had connected to them herd, you know, you had to kill that deer. Sometimes that was possible, sometimes it wasn't. What if one of those deer had already died and didn't get tested, you know? And so um, they now have this component in there that's allowing the live testing. If you go in there and do a rectal biopsy, tonsil biopsy, whatever is required, but it's, um, they go in there and test them and see, you know, do, do they have the disease? And um, you can't just test that one animal. You're gonna have to test probably all of its herd mates, maybe the whole farm. You might have to do, depending on the timeline, how long that deer has been on your farm, you might have to do two tests, six months apart so that it can, um, you know, they can see it, like I say, you get that timeline, say, so, you know, okay, didn't have it today, let's use, it allows some incubation to go on here and then test again. Um, so at least the process is there and we were getting it started. They are just now really starting to, in, in, to practice that and to do it on some farms. And um, we've been involved with USDA pushing pretty hard. It's, it's been a thorn in my side that it, it's been in place for almost a year and we've yet to do it, you know? So, so it's really neat seeing that move forward. The live testing of this, uh, for chronic waste disease is, is advanced tremendously and works very well. Um, there's new technology, new test, RT-QUIC, um, 
It's an amplification test. It actually amplifies up to like a hundred, hundreds of thousands of times. I mean, it's amazing the sensitivity that they have. And, you know, that in conjunction now using that live test with that technology is crazy, crazy accurate. So um, we're, we're also at the time all this is going forward, we're working on the validation of that RT quick and the inclusion of that as well. So that's really neat. Uh, some of the work we did when you were out in Washington, DC with the stuff mm -hmm. last year there and, and the other, I think there's 20 of us that were there, but um, we're able to get a bunch of money to, to ARS, you know, to, for, to validate some of this and then a bunch of money out there for USDA to use for research. And we're talking millions of dollars. And um, there's 3.5 million right now. And, and some of that's gonna go to the wildlife agencies, but half of that, you know, 1.75 is gonna go to the state uh, department of agriculture to use, to come to these farms on their, in the, within their states and help do the trace outs, help do some of this live testing, help validate some of these tests. So uh, on the testing side of this, we are really gaining. And on the research side of it, a regulatory side of it, uh, you know, we haven't, I'm going to say the rules haven't been relaxed by any means at all, but maybe we've gotten some language in there that allows us to work and live and survive within them. There's, there's, there's options. We're, there's we're starting options. to develop gonna, options within that. It's going to take us, it's that building block, it's that walk before you run, you know, we are crawling at a fast pace right now. And like I say, we're getting ready to start walking and running and and I, I just, I'm excited about where it's going to take us. I mean, it's going to, the change that's going to happen here in the next year, two years, three years, it's going to be amazing. Yep. And I know some will say that's not quick enough. Well, I've been doing this for 22 years, yep. fighting CWD for 22 <laughs> years. So uh, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going away. I can hang on for three years, you know, and, and it's just going to keep getting better, you know? So, yes, yeah, so aside from uh, on a national level, anyway, aside from Congress, um, you know, passing trillion dollar stimulus bills, nothing moves fast in, um, in regulation or regulatory environments uh, relating to specific industries, particularly really ours and when yeah. it comes to animal health. It just, nothing moves fast. And we yeah, can- and I wish it would. And you know, and, and I've had people tell me, I mean, you know, that we're not production, productive enough, we're not doing quick enough and this, you know, they really got to have it. And you know, I'm, and, you know, when I step back, I'm glad that our government moves slow because could you imagine some That's of the mistakes purpose. they make and the things they do wrong? And I mean, the last thing I want is them rapidly <laughs> changing our laws and changing our government, you know, our regulations, you know. So while it's a pain at times, I think is also a good thing. You know, that we don't have a constant change and a rapid change. And we can imagine trying to keep up with that. Yeah. There's a and there's a there's a purpose behind that, you know, the the, the checks and balances, the oversight. Yeah, the, the process does um move slow, but that is for a reason. It's it's so there's time to review. Um and for us that's good because you you have science that continues to evolve day by day by day. I mean, we've been getting updates and we're gonna get into this in a little bit, but we've been getting updates on CWD every few months. We have something new. We have something that's potentially groundbreaking, whether that be in the area of genomics, whether it be in the area of vaccine work, whether it be in the live testing realm, um, and really those humic are- acid. Well, humic acid, right? Soil lichen, treatments. You know, lichen a few years back. Or there, there, there's always 
you know, our industry continues to drive and push for these answers to have resolve, to be able to maintain our businesses, to not be strangled out by government regulation and, and maybe ultimately the disease itself, um, which I, 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 I'm still in question on partly, but um, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a good process that it, that it moves slow. Um, so, so I guess with that said, you know, the, the, we, we got the new, new, we call them new, they're a year and a half old, uh, program standards. I believe it was April or May of 2019. Yep. Um, the, the ability to live test was really one of the big kind of key, key pieces in there. That was a, a shift from the, the original, um, the original document. Was there anything else in there that you wanted to, to touch on? Uh, or is it kind of just status quo? I think that's the biggest one. There were several other changes, you know, little ones, but uh, that's the biggest one that we really needed and had. And that's a big shift for the North. You know, I, I know that at least in, uh, in Texas, you know, live, live testing was, was something that their state said, you know, we, we want to tackle and they, they've done that. Um, Correct. Texas has done a lot of live testing. You know, a lot of live testing. Uh, they're a little bit different setup because they're they're not going for federal status, um, and they don't test as many of the. Uh, you know, they're using it to make they test at eighty percent instead of one hundred percent, and then if they go make that eighty percent, they can make it up. But but I still kudos to them. I mean, they've done a wonderful job and and great. You know, and I was down there for the initial meetings when they first started all that. Hammered through some of it and. But the, the industry down there has worked hard, you know, and the associations down there have worked hard to get that in place and work together with their, you know, both wildlife and agriculture regulators. And uh, yeah, and it's worked. That's the neat thing about it. Uh, I'll tell you, there was a lot of people, you know, because I was, like I said, I was in those meetings, what was that, three years ago, whatever. And um, there were a lot of people that did not want to be tested and were scared of what they were going to find. And, and I do believe there's a little, some people on the regulatory side that thought we got you now, you know, we're going right. to find all your disease and what I, I can't, I don't know if it's a hundred thousand or it's a crazy number that they've tested already. There was like 40 the last time I checked. That was a few months ago. It was and a they have found big number. So few positives. Yep. I mean, and they found some say so, hey, it works great. I mean, that's a good thing. We can, um, that helps us build and grow and get rid of it, you know, right. find solutions. But the neat thing about it is they're not finding very many. Um, quick little point to make out here is, you know, because I, I know everybody that has disease and gets the disease and they call me and I talk to them and work. So I get to know these people personally. And, you know, and mo many of them I knew personally before they ever had it. So I can't say that like about EHD, you know, because there's been everybody and so many, so many people have had it, but the CWD, so few people have had it that I know them all, you know, so it's few. And the neat thing about having that personal connection is, you know, I know like, Josh, you know, we know who we're selling our deer to, buying our deer from. We know each other's herds. I know we, and I know these people on a friendly basis. I know who their clients are. I know who they're, what they're doing. And, and I can only name you one or two times where I ever know where we, you know, sold that disease from one farm to the other, you know, and it's just been very rare that's ever happened. And I only one time I ever know that when I actually went across the state line, um, and my whole point to that is, is we are not spreading this disease around like wildfire. You know, we're not moving it from farm to farm. What we are seeing is you know, usually spill over from the wildlife. And I, and, and I don't want to say wildlife. I like to say the environment 
when you say from the wildlife, it sounds like two deer are licking noses through the fence. Right. <laughs> that just don't happen, you know? And if it did, it doesn't pass, the, you know, the, the CWD isn't a, you got it, you know? It's a, it, um, it, it takes time to build up in this system. You know, it doesn't just, you know, one exposure and one sneeze in your face and boom, you got CWD. It doesn't get as frequency dependent, I think is the word that the professionals use, but mm -hmm. frequency dependent. So they, they need the constant exposure over time, you know, and, uh, and it all depends on the load of the environmental load, you know, infection load in the environment. But so somewhere, somehow, these people living in certain endemic areas that have, for whatever reason, they got a lot of CWD in that area. And it transmitted, it moves, whether it's in the dust, the bugs, the, you know, the voles, these little field mice, they find spread it very rapidly or not very thoroughly. And, uh, you know, the rain, the water, whatever, I don't know. We, there's so many unknowns yet, but what we do know is people that have done everything right, done nothing wrong, have still gotten this disease, you know, and don't have connections to any other positive herds. So, um, so anyway, so back to the Texas thing, you know, I think looking at what they've done, looking at the live tests and they have, they've done, and we're not seeing lots of disease. We're not seeing movement of disease. It's really, really neat thing. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, it's as we, I think one of the, the key points on that is, is the live test is, is a tool for us. Um, and, and again, obviously the, the folks in Texas have been able to take advantage of this uh, particular technology. Um, and this is something more new to the folks in the North. So, and when I say North, you know, pretty much any cervid farm outside of the state of Texas um, has the, the ability to, to do this live testing. Now you'd, you'd mentioned the RT quick. Let's, uh, uh, let's yeah. back up on that though. Cause you know, I mean, and they said kudos to Texas. They've done a great thing. You know, I'd be doing a tremendous disservice to the state of Ohio and the white-tailed deer farmers of Ohio if I didn't mention that years before they did it, there was a pilot project in the state of Ohio where we had several farms that were quarantined off of a trace out. I think it was five farms. And those five farms did two rounds of whole herd testing. Mm. And all those farms got released. Some of them got released like just a month before they'd have got released by riding out the five years um, because they were far enough down the road or line, you know, in the um, incubation part of it. But anyhow, they still went through with it just to help validate and approve it. And, you know, not myself, but my brother, I better say something for the, all the work he's done because like I said, I took, you know, we've taken a beat near the deer of these EHD, but years before they ever did that one, we ran the my entire herd through and did rectal biopsies and whole herd testing on them. You know, because these researchers needed deer to practice on and they needed deer that were naive and they had, we had these herds that were getting depopped, but they needed, you know, live animals, not dead animals. So, so just so everybody realized, you know, say, well, hey, I should quick run down there and do this thing, you know, thank you, Texas, you've done a tremendous job, but thank you, Ohio. Thank you, North American Deer Farmers, for allowing us to do this research at my place and, sure. and uh, the researchers for coming here, allowing me the opportunity to have the job to go out and to work and get to know these people to have that, you know, to make that happen here. But so we've been doing this. God, I'm thinking that was probably eight years ago, maybe nine, where I did my test here. And then the White-tailed Deer Farmers Ohio there and the Ohio Breeders um, 
that's got to be six. Yeah, 20, 2014 was the first the first year that uh, Pennsylvania was able to collect live samples from a from a positive herd. Anyway, right. Uh, you were you were a part of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. We, flew, we, flew, we flew out there. We and drank lives and took samples. Thank you. Yep, that's right. Appreciate your memory, Matt. Yep. So now there's. I yeah, think that's it. Okay, with that said, I should have. <laughs> that's a guy, Captain. Thank you. You should have interrupted me before. <laughs> Pennsylvania Deer Farmers Association. The president of the Pennsylvania Deer Farmers Association met us and picked us up at the airport. And yeah. myself, Dr. Nick Haley, flew out and tranquilized two different herds one positive and one not positive, but he was uh, tied up in a trace out, actually. And anyhow, uh, we did, yeah, 2014. That was right yep. after my herd. And so it was, uh, I think it's 2013 must have been mine. And then 2014, we flew out. We did two separate herds in the state of Ohio, or state of Pennsylvania. Yep. Pennsylvania Deer Farm Association is heavily involved. I think you were a director at the time. I was. And uh, we pulled the pin and did it when no one else was doing it, when the state wouldn't do it, when USDA, this was before they would say, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do it. Right. We went and did it. Yeah, there's so much. Done. And then yeah, all of a sudden, like the light came on and became their idea. Like, oh yeah, well we could do that. Well, guess what? We just did it. There's you know? so much. There's so much history. So I I it's tough to remember. I forget that's. Down. I forget most of it um, because you you get so wrapped up in what's what's happening today. Um, but yeah, there's so much history with how you know a couple lines within the USDA program standards about live testing got there. Right. There's stories, there's history, there's people. It, it was all real. I guess when you talk about the program standards, there's some, uh, and I'm looking at the time here, I don't know how many people sit and stare at this stuff for an hour, so probably have to keep it going. I'll try to be faster and talking way too much. But anyhow, um, there's language in the rule. It's always been there that talked about when you own, if, if you own a, a breeding facility, a breeding ranch, and you own a hunt ranch, and your deer are going to your hunt ranch, that you must be testing them deer in the hunt ranch side also. And in their states, it doesn't matter. You got to test them all anyway. But in some states, you don't. But it's been a real contentious issue, you know, and because you know, myself, I'm not a big believer in testing them hunt animals in hunt ranches. I'm not a big believer in testing animals at a slaughter facility. I mean, if, if there's a meat inspector that's looking at animal and says it's, you know, and he's, you know, and they're, they're, cutting it apart looking in there and it's healthy and fat you know just like we do with the bsc you know with you know mad cow they that meat inspector usda meat inspector looks at it and says it has no neurologic conditions it's a healthy animal why would we test that let's the the, the program's based off of you and i testing forever but we had to test five years you know concurrent with no movement for five years before we finally got our status. And then from there, they said, okay, now keep testing forever. Everything that dies on your farm, any animal ever gets sick, you're going to test. And that works and it works very well. So yeah, we'll testing some of the ones we harvested a hunt ranch or at a slaughter plant. Could you find it in them as well? Yes. You know, you might go find it. Could you find it a little earlier? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's be silly to say no, but is it, is it needed? I mean, is, a, is not doing that? Is just testing ones on the farm working? Yes, it is as well. So I think until it gets away on us, until, you know, it proves that it's not working, you know, let's, 
let's stay with what's economical. Let's stay with what works within the farms, which, you know, doesn't break the bank because, you know, adding more, another level in here just makes it harder. So, so with that said, when the new rule came out or they updated that, they, there's some interpretation into that from people within our government regulators that said, everybody must test, you know, at the hunt ranch. Well, no, that isn't what it says. If you own them deer, it's under the same ownership. Now, um, you truly, it, sh it should be like it's in the same pen. So really, if you're moving your deer from one farm to the other, when they leave and go into that ranch, they're no longer a certified animal. They lose because they're commingling with non-certified. You can no longer bring them back. And that's the part that I think is important for us and what we've been working with USDA and correcting them on that, you know, that this is no different than a TB tested animal. Once I sell an animal to a hunt ranch, when my TB test is due, I don't have to go get that animal back. I don't have to go to that hunt ranch and test that animal. It left my herd. It's no longer part of the certified herd. Right. And, and that's the same thing that applies to the CWD. So we've been working on that clarifying that you and I talked last week about uh, <laughs> USDA has reached out to us now um i think they've got a solution a fix for that and it's in that fix is coming because the industry guys like you and i that have been working to fix that as in other people as well but uh it, it looks like that's gotten clarified now and we possibly have a solution to make sure that's clarified for everybody that you know so good so we we covered the regulatory aspect pretty thoroughly um and we've we've hinted about a, a few parts of uh, of kind of new cutting edge re research. Um, you did mention the RT quick, and and I do want to touch on that before we we move on to our last topic. So currently, the the most I guess the most feasible test to do herds or or multiple animals is the what they call the Ramalt test, which is the rectal anal mucosal test, or we call it the rectal biopsy, where they take a small tissue sample from the rectal of, of the animal. Um, the, the gold standard for testing in, in this country is IHC, immuno, immunohistochemistry testing. That's how all of the brainstem and obexes are done. They're doing the rectals like that as well. So we have this new technology that you had mentioned, RT-Quick, uh, which is an amplification test. And you had mentioned um, funding going towards um, certifying that test or um, I forget the validating validating thank you that's that's a better term validating that test um, I know here in um, Pennsylvania as as part of that effort our legislator had approved funding and and we were able to um, to influence and direct some of those funds towards doing just just that um, can you can you talk a little bit about kind of generally what that process looks like of, of what this validation means and then what happens when we say or USDA says that we, we consider this a valid test. What does that mean for us? You know, the, you know the, a quick overview of why, too, we need that test. I mean, one of the benefits of it, when we use IHC, it's follicle dependent. You know, you need to have at least six follicles. So... You know, ideally, a, a snip, a biopsy the size of a pencil eraser, size of your smaller than your pinky finger there, I mean, fingernail, you don't need much. But we got people taking them, you know, size of their thumb or size of a quarter or because 
they don't want to have to go back if they only have five follicles or four follicles and then they have to go back and the older an animal gets the less follicles it has in that lymphoid tissue there um so it it's a challenge using ihc on especially on older animals um the rt quick is not follicle dependent you can have zero follicles and it still finds the disease. So, so that's the number one reason when people say, well, why do you need a better one? Or why do we want one more sensitive? You know, it, and that's probably my biggest thing with it is wanting to have getting away from the follicles, you know, um, as far as a validation process, the test is truly, I think that's already been hammered out. You know, Dr. Byron Coy, a good friend of mine, uh, Rocky Rock Mountain Laboratories on Hamilton, Montana. He developed that thing. God, I flew out there. I toured his lab. I bet it was 12 years ago went through that and and he was telling me about this crazy science he developed you know and, and how well it was working and and anyway here we are now today talking about it but um the the part that's a challenge is the process of the test you know this the um, reagent that's needed to perform the test and part of our u.s da our regulatory system part of our industry you know to when i have a take when i run a deer through the shoot here and i take whether it's a rectal test or a blood test or you know whatever i test that deer for whether it's tb brucellosis you know cwd whatever and you're out in pennsylvania and you run your deer through and do the same exact thing we both should be able to send them samples to independent labs different labs you know our state diagnostic labs are out to the national veterinary uh, nvsl national veterinary laboratory system at uh in, in ames iowa but they all should get the exact same result right. or it's not fair to me or fair to you if one does and one doesn't so that's the challenge right now behind using rt quick is getting people trained to do it it's new totally new science something not they didn't learn in college or learn back in school or if they've been in the scientist for, you know, 20 years or 50 years, whatever, this is new. So we need to get everybody trained and they all got, they need to be using the exact same reagent. There isn't there, you know, uh, there's many companies out there that produce materials for these labs, you know, and, and the one thing uh, they all got to have is consistency, you know, and so that's the challenge right now. And what we're working on is, developing that reagent on a commercial level to where it's available to all the labs and using the all exact same dilution ratio so mm -hmm. it's all getting exact same result um it's when they get that point um our um the all these labs are part of the nolan lab system national uh, laboratory whatever system whatever it, um, and they're all accredited. They got it every once or twice a year, an inspector walks in their door unannounced and says, okay, run this test, that test, that test. And they all got to get the same results. So that's where they're in the process with that validation of the RD quick is, is making sure that everybody throughout the country can take it. Right now there's basically one lab, uh, a commercial lab, independent lab that's running it. And then everybody in the regulatory side, you know, Ames, Iowa, not, they're using it, doing it, but not, they're using it for their own research. Right. So we need to be able to use it on a commercial level for you and I, for everybody that submits a sample to them. Um, that's where we're at in the process is getting that 
last little component ironed out and we're we're darn close they are using it the urine industry has been testing your urine now for almost a year um not that urine spreads cwd but there were some researchers research papers using rt quick showed that they could detect prions in the urine well the knee-jerk reactions right away was you know these dnrs your your conservation departments quickly ban in urine because it's going to spread CWD. Well, no, it's not at an infectious level, but the test is so good, it can detect it, that the animal has the disease, but that don't mean it's infectious or that it'll spread. You know, the amount that's there is so small. Um, but the neat thing about that is we can use that same test now to test and certify that their urine is clean and is does not have the disease in it, even if it don't spread it, it's, it's not there. We don't know. So, yeah, uh, the test is working and it's there. And like I said, we're growing leaps and bounds on that as well. That's great. Um, so the the I guess the one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to to chat with you this week, we've had um, releases over the past few months about um, genetic research and the what I consider from the presentations that I've seen, the people I've talked to, and the, the reading that I've done, really the most promising breakthrough in CWD uh, management ever. My opinion, uh, uh, not putting words right in, on track. I really okay, do. I'm not. I didn't want to put words in your mouth, but from what I've seen, um, this this particular technology that's being developed is is really um, it's it's groundbreaking. So um, the researcher who's, who's really pioneered this uh, technology is, is Dr. Chris Seabury from, uh, from Texas. Um, can you just kind of give us a general overview of, um, I guess, what the project is or what it does, and then maybe um, we can talk about the, the phases that USDA is going through and and maybe some long-term kind of hopium, if you will, um, that you and I can just chat about that and, and our industry. Yeah, yeah, definitely can. Um, back up a tish though is, yes. does it lead into it? Could we talk about the old? Uh, yeah, so, yeah. You know, we should do that with the microsatellites because you know, it'd be a disservice to those guys too. Uh, yeah. You know, we've done for years, you know, and, um, and started it many years ago. We've had several good researchers, you know, Dr. Nicholas Haley, you know, probably primarily, uh, that has been working on this for years, worked with old Dr. 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 Catherine O'Rourke. Um, she's the one that basically busted the this whole program loose or technology loose uh, with the sheep industry and scrapey. So, you know, we've had basically, what is it, five or six different markers we've been looking at. Mm -hmm and looking for resistance, you know, really the sheep industry, it came down to one, you know, and, and, and it looked like we had four or five, three or four, maybe that were better out of the six or whatever that were identified that PR, PRNP gene. Um, but, you know, and, and the industry maybe went a little head over heels with it. And I tried to people, I just had a call today, guys asked me, well, what, what happened to that one? And I was like, well, I've always told people go slow. None of this has been validated yet. Go mm -hmm. slow. You know, but same time when if CWD is knocking on your door, maybe you got to do something nice and, and take a yep. risk, you know, and you yep. go a little faster. But um, 
So with that said, that technology is not out the door yet. It isn't wrong. It isn't, it's still being in that validated process. Some of the work you and I did going to Washington, DC, we were able to get, you know, a bunch of money thrown to, to ARS and wild in, in Ames, Iowa. And then they worked, uh, and we had a bunch of producers in, uh, in Michigan step up and supplied animals and uh, USDA was able to purchase those animals, bring them in Ames, Iowa. And then right now in Ames, Iowa, we have animals that, you know, of all different genotypes that have been challenged, you know, with CWD. And uh, some have actually been, you know, some people don't like, you know, force feeding it to them or injecting in their brains, whatever. Um, but they didn't do that to all of them. They did it to some because we want to see, hey, what does it do? You know, if they don't get it, that's a great thing. But the same thing, we want some to get it. And they've also put susceptible genes in there. We yeah, know the GG animal gets it. For the context of our, our conversation, it's it's worth mentioning that the the um, codon that we're talking about is codon 96, and the, the genotypes, if you will, are Gs and Ss primarily, along with Hs and Ks, which are found at 95, codon 95, and 226, which is a part of codon 96. But I don't want to I don't want to dilute what they're trying to do. Correct. I think, buddy, the biggest thing to point out here, and it would make me think about it too, as we talk about, you know, exposing these animals and challenging them, is we know a 96 GG. So some people say, well, this was a waste of our time, and why'd you do this? And I, you changed my whole herd. And <laughs> no, I mean, the one thing we know without a shadow of a doubt is a 96 GG is the most efficient animal at converting and, and getting disease. And yes. we'll talk about. Dr. Chris Seabury's and his SNP technology, and it's it's like Star Wars type stuff. Um, heck, even this other one is. I mean, the science they're doing is amazing. But but the one thing we know, looking at that one gene, is a 96 GG gets it bad. But there's other ant components within that that maybe some 96 GGs won't. We'll have to look. But they they are the most susceptible. So um, right now in Ames, Iowa, we've got animals exposed. We got animals that are not that are in the pens with those animals. So we'll see. Now we just need time. And they're running them through doing rectal biopsies using RT Quick and IHC both to help validate the test um, and to help build consistency. But they're testing them on a set time basis. Every so many months, they take more samples and they check them, and and we'll see exactly what happens with the different genotypes there. So great, great things. I mean, it's huge progress. Good stuff going on. But then to take that a step forward, Dr. Chris Seabury come along and uh, he's done a lot of work, tremendous work in the in other livestock industries, primarily cattle for sure, uh, by the most. And what they've been able to do with the cattle industry by looking in deeper into the genome. And I, I think with the deer, he's looking at 190, 124, excuse me, 124,000 markers, 124,000 different locations. It's crazy. and. So he's not looking at just those, he said the 95, the 96, the 226, 216, all these, I mean, 116, he's, he's not just limiting it to those areas. You know, we talked about that 96 GG, well, what is it about 96 GG that makes it so susceptible? It probably is nothing with that, but it might be level three, level five, level 10. I mean, it might be Z and X and Y and, and, he's got a computer he developed a program that's analyzing that and and i apologize doc, apologize dr seabury if i'm totally butchering this but i think i got it 
right? And Josh, you can speak up, correct me if I'm sure. wrong here, but his computer program is looking at all those different markers. He's analyzing all these animals over here that have been depopulated, been put down, the positives we found, the, the, the negatives, the not detects that we have found. And trying to find just what is it that's unique about those animals. And he basically has developed a program that you can you know, send them your DNA, they run it, they analyze it, and he can tell you what's the percentage of susceptibility or depends on how you want to look at it. I think it's, you know, what percentage is of susceptible or what percentage of resistance is it, whatever. But I think it truly is looking at this percentage of susceptibility. So um, and the neat part about it, um, give you just some facts from it. Uh, I know when he first started, uh, I think a goal, I know like the cattle industry says if they can get like 60% confidence in this or uh, that they're, they're just tickled to death. He was hoping for 60. He said, there's a lot of these that they do with some of these different traits, you know, marbling and, you know, different things within the meat industry. If they can get in the twenties, they're, they're, they figure that's a success. They can move forward and they can build off that. Mm -hmm. You know, they get like 27% or something. He was really hoping he could get 60 with us. And I think he was at 81% or 80% when he, before he went into validation. And since he started the validation now with USDA and they have supplied him with some more, we've had some more herds depopulated. So he's adding more, his picture's growing, I guess, or he's getting more pieces in the puzzle, I guess. So the puzzle gets clearer, um, however you want to look at it. But I thought he was talking like 82 or 83% the other day. So that's tremendous, tremendous, you know, and confidence in the test and that he can detect, I guess the percentage that he can take an animal, detect it, test it and tell you with confidence that, yeah, this we're 80% sure you're doing. So with that, um, the neat part too was the number of animals where like when we were looking at the other technology, we looked hard at K, you know, Ks, Hs, KKs, KHs, HHs, very rare within the within the world within the industry uh, even in the wild they were rare genetics so you know it was tough to you you know i tested my whole herd and didn't have an h i mean yeah i had some i finally got an h well um you know that's that's a bugger you know you can the neat thing about it some people say well look at now my herd's worthless no it's not you just got to breed it in there so you it just takes a little time but um, the neat part about Dr. Seabury is what I'm just telling me is it's really diverse. It's amazing how many animals out there meet this, how many animals within a, her or a given herd will, will, will have the resistance needed. And we just need to know which ones those animals are. So we know what, which animals to cross. And right. we don't have to go out and get rid of the ones that aren't. We just got to breed them now to one that is, and then breed that one to one that is and keep breeding it up, you know, or, back to this, you know, if CWD is knocking on your door, you might just want to get that animal out of your farm. You know I mean? Some people might have to do a lot more aggressive than others, you know, uh, but it's amazing the technology, it's amazing the results he's getting, how well he's able to predict. I can tell you, I mean, we, you talked about earlier there, I think USDA had sent out a press release talking about what they're doing. And mm -hmm. uh, they're like, I think they said they're in phase two, maybe they're with just about done phase one or going to phase two and they're trying to get to phase three. Um, they were tickled to death with the results they seen there in phase one. I mean, the results he's producing and doing is amazing. And, uh, and he's moved on to this next phase and they're, you know, and from what I'm hearing, he's doing excellent with that as well. Again, too, that he's able to predict which animals have it, which ones don't. And, um, 
as they're going through that one, USDA now is identifying some positive herds that are out here in the landscape that they're gonna go into and they're gonna run them through, take that little skin punch, test them. And just like the sheep industry does, they're gonna remove those really susceptible animals and they're gonna leave the non, you know, the more resistant animals there and, and see if we can't keep those herds alive. And, and the neat part about it too, they're looking for herds that are, the, the herds that are identified I think are in super endemic areas too, that you know, we talked about environmental load. You know, they, they wanna do this in a, you know, and it's almost a, it's a serious challenge to the test to make sure it works because they're gonna go into like the worst environments where it's really built up the highest. Right. Where earlier I talked about, I'd like to, you know, we, we don't wanna be in them environments. You know, we don't want it to get built up in our herds. We wanna get keep it out of that. So ideally they're gonna be testing this thing, but even if, you know, ourselves, we can use it in herds that don't have that super infection, that, that high environmental load and our animals, we probably don't need to be quite as resistant because they're not getting the exposure. The higher, the more exposure you get, the more resistance you need, you know, but um, so anyway, things are moving along rapidly. And I really predict by this fall, I don't know if it'll happen for breeding season and time yet, but we'll probably be able to submit samples at least, you know, I don't know what turnaround is going to be, but um, this winter, I would think that we'll be submitting samples and be able to analyze our herds and checking them and, and starting to go down that path of resistance. Right. Um, so I, I, I appreciate you chiming in on, on Dr. Haley's work. Um, you know, one of, one of the takes that I, you know, Chris, Chris Seabury's, Dr. Seabury's, uh, research paper was, was released and, you know, my, my initial take w was that if you look at all of these cumulative studies over time for chronic wasting disease, he, he used many of the well-known studies that we've looked at before and projects or research projects, whatever you want to call them, um, to, to create a basis for some of his work and then to validate certain areas of it and then through through math through probability he's developed this model um so i i think just to to summarize uh sean's 15 minute dissertation on uh on uh, uh chris's work basically he he has a piece of hardware that's about as big as a cell phone and when i say hardware i mean like a, a little one-time use computer and you're going to send a, a tissue sample in, or this is what we're envisioning anyway. You're going to send a small tissue sample in. I suspect it'll be um, requested to use the like all flex ear punch uh, system because it just creates a really clean, sterile tissue to use. They take that uh, tissue. They, uh, I don't want to say physically place it on this piece of hardware, but they, they put it on this piece of hardware. It goes, bzz, 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 scans it, and then the math machine starts working. That, that computer starts processing this data based on the calculations that Dr. Seabury has done. He's inputted certain parameters. He said, look for this. If you find this, do this, so on and so forth. And it's a very complex problem. At the end, it basically, you have a graph. I'm using my hands if you're, you're watching the video. You have a graph with two sides, they look like goalposts of a football field, and then there's a U, and it goes down and around. And in the center, you have um, your, your neutral animals that are K 
can be susceptible, can't be susceptible, and then they branch out up these goalposts, one being highly susceptible, the other being not susceptible or not so susceptible. Um, what this could mean for, for deer breeders and ranchers across the country is we, we finally now have um, a management tool to use on our herds that looks at genetics where we can make informed decisions and literally breed away from animals that get this disease. Cutting edge. Yeah. Cutting yes. edge. Um, it sounds good. I mean, and it's been proven in, in the sheep industry. They did it with basically one marker. And, uh, you know, they looked at several there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just amazing uh, what this is going to do for us. And so uh, yeah, I pulled I pulled up um, I pulled up the press release from USDA on on June eighteenth. Um, phase two is in the the phase two is the phase we're in. It's just a paragraph. I'll read it quick. Um, based on the success of phase one, the study is now in phase two, which is focused on blinding valida blinded validation testing. Unlike phase one, the Texas A&M geneticist, that's Dr. Seabury, does not know whether the four hundred and eighty DNA samples they're analyzing RCWD positive. The goal is to further confirm that the method developed in phase one is able to achieve the same or better results by comparing regions of the genome and making determinations about CWD susceptibility of each animal. Using computer modeling and machine learning, the computer will once again assess each sample, a score that falls into one of three categories, highly, moderate, or minimally susceptible susceptible. Phase two is targeted for completion by fiscal year 2021. If Dr. Seabury is able to uh, match or exceed the success rate of phase one, we could be holding the keys to a promising new tool unlike anything we've had before with the fight for US or for CWD. Um, you know, knowing that Fiscal that, year 2021 is October 1st. Remember. There you go. And that's, that's, that's this fall. So, and, and, and we know that those blind studies are happening right now. That's that is going on, um, which is really encouraging. I and think the results were really good. I think you said that's where I think they came up with like that eighty-three percent. Yeah, because it was at like sixty-eight or seventy, I believe, when they first did it. And he's what what uh, Dr. Seabury's done is he's continued to to tweak his his programming and his assessment. Um, I think one of the key takeaways is is that. Uh, this project um, has USDA support. And the fact that it does, these are the people that write the regulations for our industry. They're, they're, they're now looking at this tool and saying, this is the, this is the real deal so far, right? If this, if this ends up being something that they think is worthwhile, it's going to be a lot easier to look at that study and then get regulations that that really mirror a new world approach to it. So that's in my eyes, I think it's awesome that USDA is is involved in this heavily. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, it gets us there that much quicker. And you know, because there's going to be two components to this. Uh, you know, and you know, for years to come here too. You know, realistically, uh, you know, the you and I, the, the average farmer out there that has no CWD we start breeding our animals on our own the way we feel fit, you know, that we feel comfortable and confident that it will lessen our risks, you know, 
And, and then the part when you do, you know, cause the program's still gonna move on. And when, when you do test or have an animal come down positive on your farm, now what? That's when USDA is gonna step in just like they do now. And, but instead of coming in and depopulating, they're come in and whole herd test your herd, you know, find out what, who has it, who doesn't have it. Do that at the same time, do the genetics, run them get rid of those super susceptibles, start breeding the other way. And, you know, just and keep you in business. That's the crazy part. Don't, you know, we mentioned earlier this economic impact and the rural America and these schools, the mill levy that's used to keep my hospital open and my school open. And, you know, um, the local volunteer fire department, the ambulance crews, all of them are based off our economic impact and our mill levies and our taxes. And, you know, when you shut a farm down, you do nothing you know, no good for anybody. So now we have a choice. We'll have tools to take us past that. So that's the, the part that I'm excited about the most. Um, you know, it's, it's gonna, we'll have, let's say the, the two different components. USDA will have their little hand in there. And honestly, if I was gonna make a prediction, I don't know how many years it's gonna take. You know, if it's gonna be five or it'll be 10, but he said, I've been doing it 22 already. So I can ride this out a little longer. But I think there's going to be a point where, you know, they're going to say, you know what, why are we, we don't need this program. You know, you guys want to protect your animals, go do it. You know, um, you're not infecting the wild ones, you know, your animals don't have it. And I honestly see that this is either going to get really lightened up and opened up. Maybe it'll open up some borders too here for these states that, uh, you know, we've been, our industry has been basically kind of strangled here with, you know, Florida, New York, mm -hmm. Indiana, Kentucky, you know, Louisiana, Missouri. I mean, a lot of states closing their borders. And well, every every yeah. state has its own closures, if you will. Every right. state has well, some sort of caveat or regulation. Point where that's gonna that could be lifted, possibly where you know we can get some of that trade back again. You know, if you're moving an animal that's not resistant or not that's resistant, that's not susceptible why not let that animal move? So, and that's back to the defense. That's why you need us. Cause we're going to be the ones in the front line pushing, you know, trying to, you know, get that door open back up again, working within those local governments, you know, and um, that's why you need to support your local state associations because you need them to step up. You know, you can't have an outsider come in and try to, you know, tell you what to do. We need to work together in them states. Um, I really do see that happening, you know, and, and I just, excited to see what's going to happen within this industry all of a sudden you can breeders can start breeding and buying and selling without worrying about is he going to come back to bite them a year down the road mm -hmm. um and then at the same time you know run them through and poke them with some ehd vaccine while we're at it so that they come alive <laughs> you know uh, what they really die from you know if, if we got breeders that can you know can raise deer and enjoy it and not you know, be devastated by the death loss, be devastated by the regulatory oversight, overburden, you know, and I mean, our industry has got such potential, you know, the hunting industry is growing just tremendous leaps and bounds and um, popularity of hunting on these game farms is, is growing tremendously. And, you know, the urban sprawl and the, you know, the lightning of America where, you know, there's this, there's, it's tough to find really truly dark space anymore or spaces where the people don't live. And, you know, we still keep it that way. We keep that green space where people can go out into the woods and can go hunting, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that's, it's just a, a great thing that I, I think is going to, I see the future of our industry is amazing. You know? 
I um, I think we'll wrap up on that uh, lovely high note. We've just burned off an hour and a half uh, chatting about uh, CWD and, and EHD. Uh, just a, a, a couple things, Sean, I will, I will wear my cowboy hat the next time we do a, an in-person uh, like this or a, 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 a virtual one so I can uh, feel part of the part of the crew. Um, and uh, I appreciate you, you know, for the work that you do uh, on our, our behalf. Um, I, I know that you're, or you were traveling around um, a whole ton. And I, I suspect that you are putting in a lot more screen time on our behalf um, with, with these agencies and such. So um, we did one that was a whole week long. That was just crazy. Now our big animal health meeting, the U S animal health association just announced last Friday that their meeting has, is going virtual, I guess. So is it really, yeah, just got announced though. Interesting. And that's a huge meeting for us. I mean, that's like a week long of intense meetings all day long and it's going, you know, online. So that's, we'll see what happens there. With that said, I am traveling Lilietta. I went to Florida um, for their meeting uh, the, the state association meeting. I'm going to Indiana two weeks, August 7th, uh, Missouri, August, uh, same week, August 8th has got, right. has theirs August 8th in Indiana. I'm going to leave in the seventh. But right, anyway, right. Uh, August 8th, Missouri as well. You know, just a little plug for those guys to sure. You know, they're coming. Yeah. Out. I got their uh, fundraiser. Yep. Texas deer association, uh, had to reschedule or is canceling theirs are trying to go live, uh, online. Mm-hmm. So watch for details on that. Um, I think Louisiana has a sale coming up, can be online. So just like I said, I really encourage everybody to pay attention to what's going on and, and to support those states. Like you supported your national association, support them as well. And, you know, you, you yourself, president of the Pennsylvania Deer Farm Association have done tremendous things. And uh, I think yours is one of the last events I went to. Um, yeah, we got in, what was that? Feb- just barely squeaked. Yeah, February 22nd or something, March 1st. Yeah. I don't I, I can't remember, but it was like right before everything started closing. And I want to thank you for the work you're putting in too. And, and not just with Pennsylvania deer farmers, but with what you do with these podcasts and helping, you know, all breeders, not just new breeders, but all breeders that are having troubles. The work you do with Servid Solutions, the mm. vaccine work that you do. We talked earlier about these Todgers vaccines. You know, there's a lot of our diseases and issues, you know, the big mom and pop, the Pfizer's and, the, you know, these big companies out there they're not going to spend the millions of dollars to, to go yeah. through the long drawn out process to produce, you know, vaccines for us, you know, and that's where we need guys like you that you need to put your heart and soul into that and, and, and really do produce a product, you know, that, that, you know, cause it isn't all about EHD and CWD. We didn't say anything about E. coli, salmonella, clostridial, mycoplasma, you know, mm-hmm. we have Fuso pneumonias. I mean, we have issues. I mean, just like any livestock industry, but the neat thing is, you know, got guys like yourself that are you know, stepped up and, and addressed those issues yeah. and really we've, done a heck of a job. Thank you. Yeah. We've, we've just, uh, we've tried to focus the most on just edu- education in general. Um, you know, for, for, for me, maybe it sounds weird, but like I, this is entertaining to me to have a conversation with you because this is what I do every day for my living. And, um, you know, the, the stuff, you know, it's not glamorous talking about regulations, talking about politics, talking about disease. But at the end of the day, if, if we can use this platform to educate people in our industry so they're better prepared to deal with the issues that, you know, maybe you and I have, have already gone through or that we know that they will, um, that's, that's a win for me. So, again, we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up. Sean, thank you very much for, um, 
for uh, chatting with me here. And as always, stay tuned for another episode of the North American Beer Talk.